You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Many people saw parenthood as the next step. And one woman who I interview in the film who didn't want children would actually say to people she couldn't have children because she felt she couldn't come out and say it would make her unhappy to have a child. Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. You work too hard to let your money just sit in savings. Learn how to make your money work as hard as you do at fidelity.com slash demand more. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. Here's the thing. At Her Money, whether we are in our offices putting together stories for hermoney.com, whether we're in our private Facebook group facilitating a conversation with the 10,000 of you who are in our private Facebook group talking about anything and everything, or whether we're pulling together a script for the podcast What we're trying to do is talk openly about the choices that we make as women. And the nice thing is today we live in this world where we can choose to do and be anything we want. We can be CEOs. We can be engineers, cops, military generals. We can be side hustlers. The list goes on and on and on. And in the same way that we're now choosing and celebrating the things that we want in our lives, we're also choosing and celebrating the things that we don't. And one of those big things is motherhood. The birth rate in the United States hit a 30-year low last year, dropped to 3.8 million, according to the National Center for Health Statistics. But that number just punctuated what many of us have known anecdotally for a long time, and that is that there's this growing chorus of women who are happily choosing the child-free life. And that's why I'm so thrilled today— to be joined by Maxine Trump, who is an award-winning writer, producer, director. She's got a new feature film called To Kid or Not to Kid, which confronts the societal expectations around motherhood. Maxine, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jean. Tell us a little bit about you and your movie. Wow, where to start? I think that was such a fantastic introduction because I think we are in this place now where women have uh, so much choice. The glass ceilings have uh, are beginning to break, and I think your podcast really emphasizes that, which is fantastic. And I think what we're able to do now as women is really consider what makes us happy. You know, that seemed a little groundbreaking when you think, when I think back to my mother and maybe everything she wanted to do and she tried to do everything. Mm -hmm. And I think by seeing her trying to do absolutely everything and for a time as a single mum, it really made me consider what, what did I want? What would actually make me happy? And until I got to an age where I had to consider my biological options of still having um, children, I started thinking about what I really wanted. And at the time, 
there were no films out there about deciding whether or not to have children. And I'm a filmmaker, and that's my medium. And I was missing that. I needed that. And I, I think a lot for a lot of documentary makers, we make films to explore unexplored territories. So that was the genesis, really, for the film. It was an investigation as to why had this never been made before. And, and at the time, it was so not talked about. There were a few books, um, there were a few articles, and now six years later, there's been an explosion of books, an explosion of articles, but still this is the first film and I'm so excited to to get the film out there. It opens on November 15th. Congratulations. Thank you. What do you think it is about motherhood that we are so, I guess, late, for lack of a better word, in approaching it as a decision, as a choice? Gosh, that's, I'm so excited that you've even phrased it like that, Jean, because we it does feel late. The, the conversations about what we can do as women in the workplace, in making money, uh, fighting for the rights to have an equal salary, to the Me Too movement, you know, a, a, a year ago, this still seems like a taboo subject, and I don't know why exactly. I have a lot of unqualitative reasons that I think why. Like? I actually had one mother say to me that everybody wants you to join their tribe, right? It's, we're very tribalistic, mm-hmm. and I think for a long time, many people saw parenthood as the next step, And one woman who I interview in the film who didn't want children would actually say to people she couldn't have children because she felt she couldn't come out and say it would make her unhappy to have a child. So I think there's been this pressure that if this is deemed what psychology or society deems like the next step, it's deemed the unusual step, even though 20% of us won't have children. And that's beginning, I think, to break. I think in, you know, the glass ceilings breaking and some of the other choices maybe for us as women are, are opening up, but we're still having to to wrestle this one, which is which is a shame. As you look at the arc on marriage, do you see this following a similar path? I mean, I know just in the time that I've been reporting on personal finances, the age at which we are marrying has been getting later and later and later, just like the age of motherhood. But for many women, it's not a decision of when, it's a decision of if. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Again, I <laughs> I just want to say thank you all the time <laughs> because you so get it. And the if that you talk about and not the when, like, like we're so financially able to support ourselves now. It's a different world for us and it's a wonderful world now for women opportunities are opening. There's still a ways to go, but now we can support ourselves. We don't have to stay in situations that make us unhappy. We don't have to stay in the job that makes us unhappy if the boss isn't going to give us the opportunity. We don't have to stay in a marriage or a relationship because it makes us unhappy. And we don't have to have children if we think it's going to make us unhappy. You use the word child-free, not childless. 
when did that come into the vernacular? That was a process for me. I used to call myself childless. I was always told from a young age it might be difficult for me to have children. And that's usually, it's interesting as you get into this world and you explore more, childless usually is a term that um, women will use if they can't have children and child-free if they decide not to have children. But I learned this. When I first started out, I definitely called myself, you know, or I was thinking I might be childless. And then it took a friend of mine, actually, who was child-free. I didn't realize was child-free until I started making this film that said, uh, why are you using this term childless? You're not less than. Why is there a less in this term for you? And it was like this eye-opening moment for me because there's a power in owning kind of a decision you make, right? There's an empowerment, I think, for women. And the more we talk about it in a positive way, I think it will be less of a taboo subject for a lot of women who are feeling in a place of struggle or lack of support or trying to find the words, which I was trying to do, to talk to my family and friends and community about my decision to not have children. It seems like, I mean, you said 20% of people will not have children. It seems like that number is growing very quickly. The New York Times and Morning Concert did a survey of people aged 20 to 45, and 58% of people, the majority, said that they actively did not want them or they weren't sure. So do you see it growing that quickly? Because those are Those are staggering numbers. I agree. They are staggering numbers, and I think it is growing. I think we're in a different world now than we were even in the 70s when we were told we could be heading to an ecological crisis. And I think a lot of younger people are more aware. And in the last six months, a number of prominent people have been talking about whether this is a subject we should talk about now. You know, from Bernie Saunders to um, the birthstrike movement in the UK, where women are talking about they can't have children because they can't bring children into the world when the planet is in the place it is right now. How much do you think money has to do with the growing desire to be child-free. I always remember my mother, this goes back years, when I was thinking about having kids. I have two children. They're they're older now. They're both in their 20s. But my mother used to say that if she and my father had waited until they could afford children to have children, none of us would have ever been born. And sometimes I think about that, and then I think, well, yeah, but college didn't cost near what it costs today. So where's the financial component? That's definitely a part of it. I mean, a lot of the reports you're seeing, millennials talking about, well, I I couldn't possibly afford to bring up children. And I think they've lived through financial crises, wars. They aren't in jobs anymore where they're jobs for life. And I think they're being much smarter than actually I was at that stage, you know, or that age where they're really thinking of their future. And that wasn't so much a concern for me. I think really being aware of who I am as a person, and I think for a lot of those people, they'll probably get to that place too, that, okay, do they move out of the city because they can't afford to live here and have children? Do they move out of 
Denver? Do they move out of LA? Do they move and and maybe downsize their life slightly because they're deciding they want children? I think fundamentally, it's really about what you want. And as you as a parent, Jean, you hopefully you wanted your children and you're really happy and in a place of joy. And for me, I think probably I'm going to be a happier person for not having them. So I think, yes, a lot of issues help put kind of the nail in the coffin. But I think for the most part, people come to this decision because of what makes them happy. I want to come back to the money in just a second, but I also want to point out to my own children if they are listening to this podcast, because they don't always, but sometimes they do, that I did indeed want them. Um, (laughs) Before we move on, let me remind everyone that Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. We are here to remind you that you work too hard to let your money just sit in savings. Whether you're new to the workforce or you're approaching retirement, Fidelity will help advise you throughout your career and beyond so that your money is working just as hard as you do. It all starts with a yearly financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. From there, the folks at Fidelity will work with you to evaluate your investment options, determine ways to grow your savings, and keep you on track to reach your life's goals. Start demanding more from your money today at fidelity.com slash demand more. I'm very happily talking with Maxine Trump, writer and director of the new feature film To Kid or Not to Kid, all about the growing chorus of women who are choosing to live child-free. So from money, we go to career. Where does ambition play into all of this? Where, where does career play into it? Are women choosing to be child-free because of their careers? I think for some women, sure, and for some men. But I don't think it's true for everybody. I think it's a life decision. And I know actually a few articles that have come out recently, there's been a bit of a pushback of this sort of cold, career-hearted woman who just has this goal that they have to be, you know, they want to be so successful in life because there are many women who are mothers who are very, very successful. So I don't think it's, I don't think it comes down to, uh, um, yes, you want to be a career woman, so you're deciding not to have children. I think it's a very broad spectrum. I think for me, having come from a family where my mum absolutely wanted to do everything and knowing what I wanted to do, being a filmmaker, traveling around the world, being in the jungle, being away from home for months at a time, that didn't lend itself well to being a mother. I'm not saying other filmmakers can't do that. And there can be an absolute balance and maybe they have familial support or a partner that is playing that role. I often joked with my husband that I could be the dad and he could be the mom. And he was like, yes, absolutely. But I don't think society is ready for that quite yet. Is this a theme that you've noticed in your work? And I'm just sort of thinking about my own kids, because I definitely, I made choices about what I would do and what I wouldn't do. But I think if you asked my kids, they would say, yeah, my mom tried to do too much of everything. And I wonder if it's children like my children who are then saying, yeah, I'm not going to try to do everything. I'm going to try to do one or two things well. Well, I think it's 
really tricky. It's a very tricky, complicated subject. And I think that's why it's still deemed a taboo topic because we haven't found this language to be inclusive of everyone's decision. And my film, for those that come to the film and and are either deciding whether or not they want children or have have decided they are absolutely child-free or are childless, it's a very open dialogue because there's no point in fingers at anybody for their choices. I think what has been super hard for women for a really long time is to do it all without necessarily the support to be able to do everything. And I've had plenty of my female, my female friends who are mothers who have had guilt about... Hello. Right? Yeah. And, you know, what a shame. It, it Because... <sighs> It's really hard for women to do it all, really, really hard. And unfortunately, I have seen, and again, there are many men out there who are fantastic partners, and there are very many, there are gay partnerships that I, I want to model much more <laughs> my life on, but um, where, where the balance of taking care of the children is much more measured. But I've seen many relationships and there's a lot of reports, unfortunately, on heterosexual couples where the woman is doing much more caretaking for the children. And that still upsets me a lot. And much more caretaking for the older parents. When we look at yes. uh, when we look at the quintessential caregiver, it's a 59-year-old woman who is taking care of her mother and she's spending about 20 hours a week doing it. For women who are child-free, is there a worry about who will take care of me? You know, no. And I'm going to own that. Okay. (laughs) I think that's good. (laughs) It might come as a surprise. Because actually there's this wonderful scene in the film. I have lots of nieces and nephews, and I actually talk to them about whether they're worried they'd have to take care of me. And they're like, you're going to be fine. And I was like, I am going to be fine because I actually don't mind going into, if I end up going into a, a care home or a shared facility, that doesn't, I'm not afraid of that. And actually there's a lot of statistics about if you have parents, if you don't have parents, actually, and I can dig out these statistics because I always like to quantify, you know, the facts. Only 15% of parents that have children actually have the day-to-day care. So we still have to, and, you know, I look at my family and I look at families I know, quite often we're living so far away from our parents that we a, we can't get there as much as we'd like to. Mm-hmm. And B, we need the help because we're often in full-time employment. So we can't give as much caretaking as we would like to give. So I don't think it's the same as it once was. I do hear you about the responsibility being deemed to lie more at the um, the daughter's door uh, than it may do at the, the son's, possibly. But I I, I wonder, and whether we're talking about women who are child-free or childless or men who are child-free or childless, as well as this hugely growing population of singles, I do think that there—I think it requires 
maybe some additional planning that I have to make these plans for myself. I mean, you said you would be happy to go into a care home or shared facility, but that's something that either you're going to have to work out or you'll have to work out with your husband or with those nieces and nephews. And maybe I'm being insensitive and I hope not, but it does seem like there is an extra step that you may need to take. I don't think you're being insensitive at all. I think this is a subject we all should be talking about and thinking about much more than we we do. But I think what is interesting is actually it doesn't matter whether you have children or not. We should all be thinking about our future. Absolutely. And and I'm saying that to myself as much as anybody because, you know, my pension could be higher when I'm paying into my 401k. But I don't think this expectation that our, our children will look after us, I think... That's a concern. I don't think that expectation can be quite what it was in the 50s or 60s or 70s because we're so disparate. We're so, we live in so many different places that I think we all have to have a concern about what lies at the end of, you know, our, our working career. And, and actually, I hope I don't retire per se. Like, I really want to keep making films for as long as possible. If Clint Eastwood can do it, why can't I? I totally, I totally agree <laughs> with you. Absolutely. And when it comes to not just the question of being remembered, but what do you do with your money? <laughs> Spend it. <laughs> Die broke? Is that the philosophy? Well, you know, this is going to be really personal. I am a filmmaker. One of my reasons for not having children or thinking that I wouldn't have children is because I wanted to carry on making films. I knew I would have to earn a certain amount of money to be able to support children and support making the films that I wanted to make. It was part of my decision-making process that I didn't want to always have to make films for clients that I didn't necessarily believe in. I wanted to do as many passion projects as possible. And that was part of my decision-making process, actually, as a creative person to decide, okay, I'm creating in different ways. Um, as Ava DuVernay says, she creates films, she doesn't create babies. And um, that's part of what I do with my money. I'm reinvesting every film I make. I reinvest in the next film and the next film. And that's what I really enjoy doing. Other people may be investing in stocks and shares and looking after their end of years experience. That's probably not the right term, but being maybe a little more pragmatic about where their money goes. But that's how I choose and have made my choices. And I think it's very individual for everybody. Very personal. As we wrap this up here, I raised the issue of insensitivity. And I do think it is hard to talk about. I, I remember I had a colleague years and years ago who told me that she didn't want children. And I think I probably looked shocked and dismayed, which was not the reaction that I'm sure she was hoping for. We are not here. We pride ourselves on this show that we don't judge. And I I don't want to be judgy, but how do we talk about it? And what are the right words and the right reactions when we want to be inclusive? You know, what was amazing for me I was on a podcast in the production of the film, actually, because this has really galvanized a lot of conversation, which is really exciting. Someone actually said to me at the end of the interview, congratulations for your decision. And you never hear that. As a woman who is deciding not to have children, you are always congratulating other people. 
about having a child and you're saying, you know, and and the balloons come out and it's wonderful and the cakes and there are millions of, of push parties, gender reveal parties, etc. Not so many parties for when you're deciding not to have children. And honestly, if you had, if I'd been your colleague and you'd said, congratulations for your decision, I think I would have remembered your name forever uh, because it's an acknowledgement of it's been a process for us too. And I think it just shows the broad, the broadness of all options are fine for women to make. And to be quite honest, making the film, and I, I now have a spin-off web series as well, which is launching at the same time on Independent Lens on PBS, which is thrilling That's because great. it's going to reach a lot of people. It's going to open the doors for conversations and for people that have struggled to get people to understand their decision, they can send them a link to the film and they can use that as an icebreaker. Because I think people have struggled with causing any kind of offence one way or the other. And I think it's going to be, I think it's moving towards a place that we are seeing this talked about much more and it's going to be deemed a normal decision because it is normal. By the time that this podcast launches, the film and the web series will already be out. So where can our listeners go to see them? Sure. It'll be available on VOD, so you can go to iTunes and Amazon. That'll be coming out in December. And then if you want to check out the PBS Independent Lens series, go to their YouTube channel, and you can watch five episodes of different people across the divide, whether they had kids and feel very adamant that that's the choice you should make, to people that have either struggled with IVF or uh, a gay couple deciding, uh, sorry, a young gay man deciding whether or not to have children. It really is a debate show. So it goes even further than the feature film does because it brings in so many people's stories, which is just delightful. So yeah, check out the YouTube channel too. And to kid or not to kid.com for the website. Absolutely. Maxine Trump, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back. I'd love to. Thanks, Jean. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. Hermoney.com's Catherine Tuggle has joined me in the studio. That was really interesting. Thank you for teeing that up. She's great. She is great. And I felt like so much of what she's doing is echoing the sentiment that I'm seeing from my friends and in our Facebook group and everywhere. I mean, it really is such a movement now to be child-free and to embrace it. We did a survey recently of our listeners and found a huge percentage don't have kids. And some, I think, are just either in college, coming out of college, right out of college. They're young for kids. But a growing number are child-free by choice. I know you monitor the Facebook group with Christine and have seen those questions about leaving a legacy. How do you think about that? I think that you have to find your passion. You have to find what sets you on fire in life. And I think that that will always be your answer for leaving a legacy. I don't know of anybody who has been in the later years of their life with big piles of money and said, gosh, I just have no idea what to do with this. That's right. I think that at a certain point, you find 
and you know in your heart what you want to do with that money, whether it's leaving it to your nieces and nephews, leaving it to your favorite charity, a foundation. Everybody finds their path. The trick is just realizing what it is. And figuring out that it's a fit and then figuring out how you can use the money best to do whatever it is you need to do. I I opened a donor-advised fund with Fidelity actually a few years ago and have put some money into it each year, figuring that I will figure out somewhere along the way where I really want to make an impact, but I want to get the tax deduction right now. And it's not easy. I mean, I know what causes light my heart up. I just haven't quite figured out how to get the best impact for those dollars. And I think that's a whole different show. It is. We can look into that, too. Okay. All right. That sounds good. What do we have in today's mailbag? Our first note comes to us from Kathy in Brewster, New York. She writes, Hi, Jean. My 86-year-old father passed away a few months ago. I inherited a portion of his annuity, which was an IRA. I now have $68,000 in a beneficiary IRA in a brokerage account. My question is, how should this money be invested? The annuity was surrendered, so it was transferred as cash to my account. I will have to take the RMD every year, which will be taxed. I'm a 59-year-old single mom with two kids in college. My current income is less than $100,000 annually. I could use more cash from this account to help pay tuition, but I don't want to mess up the FAFSA or the amount of grant money my kids may be entitled to receive from their colleges. Any suggestions on how to invest this money? Leaving it in cash does not seem to be a wise decision. Thank you for all your helpful information. Kathy, thanks so much for the question. I'm very sorry about the loss of your father, but I definitely understand why you're concerned about it. When we think about financial aid, we don't have to worry about money in retirement accounts if we're not in a period where we are required to take distributions because that money isn't factored into the formula. But once we are required to take it, then it can count against us. And so I think you're right to be concerned. I think you're right to be thinking about it in this way. One thing you may want to do is think about using just the money that you are required to take out to help either pay down student loans or just avoid the need to take additional student loans and put off taking as much as possible until after your kids graduate from college. In that case, I would make sure that I'm investing the money with kind of a medium-term focus. You're not investing it in a way that you're looking out 20 to 30 years down the road. You're more likely to be looking three to five years down the road, which may be 10 years down the road, depending on how um, far along in college your kids are. That doesn't really argue for a very aggressive stance, but it doesn't argue for keeping all of it in cash either. For guidance, I would take a look at 529 accounts and how portfolios are oriented for kids who are three to five years away from college, because that's basically the time frame that you're looking at. You're going to want some stocks, but you're likely going to want more fixed income because it's safer. The other thing to do is there is a firm that is housing this IRA. Um, 
If it's a firm like Fidelity or one of its competitors, you also can pick up the phone and you can give them a call and you can ask for a little bit of guidance in terms of how to invest these funds for a three to five year time frame. And you'll get a good, helpful opinion there. Our next note comes to us from Leanne. She writes, I'm a longtime Jean fan and was ecstatic with the launch of the Her Money podcast. I want to bump up my savings in 2020 and need some clarification from the expert, Gene. Oh, my goodness. My husband is 54 and contributes to a 401k with his employer and also has a traditional IRA and Roth IRA with an independent advisor. He contributes the max amount to the 401k, including the catch-up contribution, but does not contribute to either of the IRAs. I am 50 and contribute the max amount to my 401k with my employer. Our adjusted gross income is currently around 185000 Historically, my husband has not contributed anything to his IRA because his advisor told him we made too much money to contribute. I've also been told that we can only contribute a total of $26,000 pre-tax to our retirement accounts for 2020. Since we're both over 50, in 2020 we can contribute 19500 to our 401k plus the catch-up contribution amount of 6500 Is that correct? How much can my husband add to his IRAs? Can he contribute the $6,000 plus the $1,000 catch-up? Can he contribute to either the traditional or the Roth? I would also like to open a Roth. Can I contribute the $6,000 plus the $1,000 catch-up? Any advice would be appreciated. Great, great question. What I love about it, Leanne, is that it comes from the place of if you're at a period in your life where you can afford to save more than you can suck into a 401k or whatever your retirement account at work happens to be, I think you should absolutely do that. And I'm not sure why you were told that you are not able to contribute to a Roth in addition. Um, The 20 $26,000 is correct. You are each eligible to to contribute $26,000, $19,500 to your 401k plus a $6,500 catch-up contribution in the year 2020. But when you take a look at the income limits for making a Roth contribution in 2020, uh, the the income limit to make a full contribution is $196,000 married filing jointly. You guys are under that. Um, And even if you were to earn slightly more than that, as long as you're under $206,000, you can still make a partial contribution. And by the way, you could do the same for 2019 because you have until April to make those contributions. The limits for 2019 were 193 thousand dollars for the full contribution and two hundred three thousand dollars for a partial contribution. The Roth is the way to go. If you were looking to make a traditional IRA contribution and have it be deductible, you're way over the income limit. So that is not a possibility. But I see absolutely no reason if you've got the money why you should not suck some of it into a Roth knowing that you've already paid taxes on it and know that it can grow for your future without you ever having to pay taxes again. To me, that sounds like a really, really smart move. Agree. And I love this question because it just shows that she wants to do the most she possibly can, which is so nice to see. And that you're paying attention to the details, right? We absolutely want to maximize 
whatever remaining tax advantages we have left. And and we seem to have fewer each and every year. But this is a really great one. So go for it. Our last note comes from Lisa and Krista in Long Island, New York. They write, Hi, Jean. We're at a crossroads with the home we love. We're parents in our late 40s, and we have a teenage boy who's 14. We have a three-bed, three-bath home with no basement and a wide-open floor plan. We use our third bathroom for guests. Our son needs a space to hang out with his friends, but we're not sure whether we should live through a renovation or move to a house with an extra bedroom or perhaps a basement or bonus room. We're considering building a 1.5 to 2 car garage with a bonus room on top. What makes more sense, reno or move <laughs> Thanks, Jean. I, in reading between the lines of your question, I'm going to go with reno. And the reason I'm going to go with reno are actually, the reasons are actually two. First of all, you write, this is a home you love. It is really hard to find a home you love. And generally, a home you love comes with a neighborhood you love and neighbors that you love. And those things are really, really hard to replace. The second is that you're considering building a garage with a bonus room on top. You didn't say if it was an attached garage or a detached garage. Something about the way you write this makes me think it might be detached. And if that's the case, you're not really having to live through a renovation. Your renovation will be outside your home. You won't have to have dust all over the place in your kitchen. You won't have to be out of your ordinary dwelling. Plus, moving just sucks. I mean, moving is really, really difficult. So I'm going for reno, and I hope that that works out for you. Amazing. All right. Thanks so much. I love it when our listeners have a sense of humor. Same. Yeah. In today's Thrive, we all know about credit scores, but they are not the only scores controlling our lives. There's also your secret consumer score. It's a number that takes into account your consumer activity in an unbelievable amount of detail and may determine a lot about your consumer experiences going forward, including whether you'll be tagged as too frequent a returner of merchandise and how long you have to wait on hold when you call. In the past, there was no way for individuals like us to access these reports. But now there are several companies out there that will compile a consumer report on you at your request. A few of them include SIFT, Zeta Global, and Retail Equation. And what they'll do is gather your data from thousands of consumer sites and generate a report that will tell you pretty much everything from what you ordered online last year to the transcript of the conversation you had with customer service. And yes, it is more than a little unsettling. The question is, how useful is it really for you to pull your own report? And the answer is not so useful right now, but I do have to admit I'm a little curious. And if you ever needed more motivation to kill those customer service reps with kindness, then perhaps the fear of getting a bad report card will be just what the doctor ordered. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Maxine Trump for the great conversation about the empowered decisions more women are making around motherhood and their futures. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. 
Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through PRX. Tune in next week. We'll be sitting down with Frank Abagnale. Yes, that Frank Abagnale. He's got a new book out called Scam Me If You Can to talk about how we can protect ourselves in a world of ever-persistent threats from robocallers, romance scams, health insurance fraud, and much, much more. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk soon.